All right, here we go on a Sunday morning, turning to the Gospel of Luke. And it's a real privilege, isn't it? We go from week to week as we just kind of work ourselves through this book. And really, we're focusing on the person and work of Christ. Which, in this passage today, it's amazing how much we see of Christ. Uh, We think of His uh, here in His omnipotence. He knows what's in the future. He's made the future. He's a purposeful God. We see His love. We see His mercy. We see His grace. We see His faithfulness here. We see the power uh, of deity and raising one from the dead. We see the authority that He has and, and, and just speaking the Word. And we see that He is a great prophet, but much more than a great prophet and he actually visited his people. He came from heaven to earth. And so it's amazing how much we see of Christ. There's much more there than what just those few attributes that we just talked about. Uh, but this person and work of Christ, it should make us draw more near to him every time that we think of him. And that's really what, what it's about as we meet here, isn't it? And you know, Christ really is probably the most well known person in the world. Uh, I'm not saying people know Him intimately or know Him personally, but they know of Him in human history. The literate civilization, uh, especially, knows something about the name of Christ. There is no better topic, no better subject to talk about than Christ Himself. There's nothing better to focus on in all the world, is there? You know, we have interest in this world that we do, and, and really it's it's... Really not secular. It's all for the glory of God, isn't it? That's really what it is. But just thinking and dwelling on the thoughts of Christ, it's amazing. You know, the Bible points to the Messiah starting right there in Genesis, right in chapter 1. And then we start getting the promises of the Messiah and the covenant that God makes with His people. So we should be focusing on Him because that's what it's all about in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So here we are in Luke and we're at the heart of the account of Jesus Christ when you get into the Gospels. Think of it. You know, it's something that we're familiar with. We've heard the stories of Jesus. We've heard about Him all of our lives. Maybe not until recently till we started really knowing who He is. But the, the fact of the matter is, is how amazed we should be when we start thinking this man is real. He's personal. This is God. God come to earth. And so as we study deeper and deeper, we should be in more and more awe of this Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, and, and the thing is, in this story, He came to this woman and her son. He came to them. They didn't even ask. He just came to them. He came to us. He came to us when we were dead also. Dead spiritually. And so we think about that. Uh, we see this time and time again throughout the Gospels where Jesus just comes to people. Just visits them. They don't know what kind of a desperate situation they're really in. Physically, they might be in a terrible, desperate situation, but spiritually, they're even worse. They're lost without Him. And so, whether it's a sinful woman at the woman at the well, that story in John 4, or whether it's the blind man at the temple, whether it's a poor beggar in Jericho, or a rich man up on a tree, um, Jesus came to those people. They weren't expecting a visit. They didn't ask for a visit and He came. Jesus really moves in power for His people, doesn't He? So whenever they're trapped in a hopeless, desperate situation, Christ comes and He changes their lives. So we want to look into one of those really wonderful stories again. That's what we're looking at on one of these times that we're looking in today. It's a pitiful scene. Pitiful town, pitiful situation in this village called Nain. But what we want to do is watch Jesus do the absolute impossible. And it's incredible. One more time, we're going to look at this. Jesus raises a dead man, and we know there is nobody who can do that. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus raises the dead. No other religion has that where they raise the dead. But 
Christianity has shown it, it was in the person of Christ. Because He is life. And then He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Only life comes from Him. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Why don't we uh, grab our Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 7. And we are in verse 11. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. And his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. The only son of his mother, she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, He felt compassion for her, said to her, Do not weep. He came up, touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And He said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. The dead man sat up, began to speak. Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all. They began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us. God has visited His people. This report concerning Him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. Let's pray. Father, what power there is in this story. Give us the power this morning to understand the meaning of this true story. Give us power this morning as we read it, as we preach it, as we understand it, and as we live it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's go to uh, verse 11. Right off the bat, this is truly <laughs> wonderful. Dead man sat up and he spoke. Not a made up story. The story starts off with soon afterwards. Soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain. This is shortly after Jesus healed the centurion's servant. Can you remember that? Seems like months ago that we were last there. I was gone a couple of weeks. I missed you guys. Good to be back. I'm thankful for uh, Zach Whitson and Rebecca and being able to uh, help this keep going through the last couple of weeks. And Zach gave the message, and so appreciate that very much. And so now, as I try to remember where we were at, and you guys try to remember, uh, the centurion's servant was about ready to die, and the centurion called for Jesus, but centurion had so much faith, even as a Gentile, to believe that Jesus could heal him from a distance. He didn't even want him to come to his house, for that would be, um, that would be uh, actually for a Jew to come into a Gentile's house was not the thing to do. That would uh, cause all sorts of problems. And so he just said, you know, heal him. And, and Jesus did. That was quite the faith. He said, I have never seen this kind of faith in Judaism. Jews don't have this kind of faith. This Gentile. Now, soon afterwards, it's probably not that same day, it could be, but it is very close to the time period, could be the next day too, could be within a couple of days. It's very soon, it's soon afterwards. He went to this city called Nain. This is a a general area where Jesus has been and... Uh, it's about 20, maybe 25 miles, probably about 20 miles from around Capernaum. That's where Jesus has been, all around in that area. And it's about six miles south of Nazareth. Of course, that's the city where Jesus grew up. And so it's in that area. It's just a little town. It's nondescript. It's really not any significant kind of town at all. And he goes to Nain, and he takes this crowd. i got a feeling it's a lot of the same crowd that saw the centurion's servant being healed and heard about that and witnessed that. Uh, 
Jesus has determined to go to Nain. Now, under our first point here, the tragic meeting, you'll see divine purpose. And this means this was the purpose of Jesus. Where's He going to go next? Does He just do things willy-nilly? You know, ooh, I think I'll just go there. This thing has already been planned out. Where He's going to go and who He's going to go to. That's a purposeful God. Does He have divine purpose? Yes. It's not just things that He's grabbing out here and there, but He's actually doing this because it's been determined. And He grabs this huge entourage with Him. And it's a day's journey. I don't know how many here have done it, but have you ever done 20 miles hike? Have you ever done that? Uh, We do have one here. It would at least take a day. Would you say that that would probably be true? I mean, if you're going like three miles an hour, you know, that would be 21 miles for, what, seven hours? Say eight hours would be 24 miles. Or two miles would be, what, uh, eight hours would be 16 hours, ten hours. Anyway, it is, it's a long trek. That's a long walk. So that's that's a pretty big deal uh, where he's going to go and take a big crowd with him. He's determined this. That's one thing I want you to stick in your mind. This Jesus just doesn't do things by happenstance. And so here we are. We go to Nain. Nain means pleasant place. Nain. Pleasant place. Or beauty. That's a pretty good term. It goes back to the time of the Old Testament in Genesis 49. 14 and 15 there, and it's talking about the the tribe of Issachar, and they would inherit this land, and it would be called Pleasant. And that area is Nain. So it meant pleasant, it meant beauty. Jesus traveled from the Sea of Galilee, goes to this small town, very, very small, and it's here that life itself meets death. That's what you have. You have life, you have death. They're meeting there. You have a a woman who is mourning, she's grieving. And she's mourning because her son has departed. He is dead. A mourning woman. Departure of her son. And then there's the Son of God who brings all things into being. And he's going to intervene here. You have this other son, this son of this woman, the one who is uh, one who has lost her husband. Now think about that. This widow has lost her husband. That's pretty significant, and now has lost her son. Jesus is working on a divine calendar. He knows exactly where and who He's going to go to and when it's going to be. This is the beauty of this story. Because even though it's dealing with a woman and a dead man, it's really about Christ ultimately, isn't it? Everything is about Christ. But how He does this and what He does is amazing. He has a divine appointment. He's not just guessing. Oh, there's somebody in Nain. I know there's somebody there lost that needs me, and I know they're they're sick, and so I think I'll go there. He knows specifically there's going to be a dead man there, and he's going to meet them at the right, perfect time. A divine appointment. This is a fixed purpose. Do you agree that God has a fixed purpose for everything? Nothing is by accident. Otherwise, God says, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. Now we're in trouble. I didn't see that one coming. God is not God then, is He? So nobody should be able to disagree with that. Uh, God is not a whimsical God. He never acts whimsically. Uh, There are no unplanned problems or any contingencies that are unplanned. There's, There's not a plan B. There is one plan. Plan A. God's plan is fixed. It's settled. It's unchanging. 
God is absolutely sovereign. Do you know that the best privilege that I can ever do is just brag up Jesus Christ, God, the Holy Spirit, and just talk about the triune God in all their beauty. And you know what? That's the best ground to ever be, to ever be speaking. Your mouth can get you into trouble. Your actions can get you into trouble. Your thinking can get into trouble. And when you're thinking on this kind of stuff, when you're thinking the high thoughts of God, that's where you want to be because you say, I, I say, I want to get this thought higher. I've said this before. I've said it for over 30 years. But how can I get it to where it has even more punch to it, right? So this is what we're about but the Sovereign God. Let's turn to Jeremiah 29, verse 11. How can I bring this even further to our attention? It will make an impact on us here today. Oh, this is a verse that every one of you know. You probably, 80% of you probably claim it. And some of you have plaques on your walls. I know, I probably sold them to you at the store. We sold these a lot. They were really mainly for graduations. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. There is good news, isn't it? That was a message to the exiles that Jeremiah gave. He gave a lot of bad news. But here's good news. I know the plans that I have for you. We have our own plans. That's okay. If they've been designed by God, because our plans are really His plans. Because we say, not my will, but your will be done, right? So, you got to love that. I know the plans that I have for you. God has great plans. He has, he's already made this out for us. Isaiah 46.9 Hey, model of our church is to think high of God. A high view of God. Is that what we want to be about? Can't say that enough, can we? That should remind us. We should have a high, high view of God. 46.9 Remember the former things long past. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is no one like Me. There's no other gods. He says, remember the former things long past. Remember what I have done for you. He's telling that to Israel here. Remember those things, how I delivered you. Remember how I delivered you from Egypt through the Red Sea and, and all those different things, giving them water and food and all the different times. And Isaiah here is prophesying about their idolatry and then Babylon's idolatry and who the true God. And then he comes and says, Remember the former things from long past, for I am God, there's no other. I am God, there's no one like Me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. That's a great God. That's our God. He says, I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Aren't you glad you have a God like that? We don't have any weak God. Our God is powerful. Look in John chapter 4, verse 4. Look how he comes to a lady who is a Samaritan of all people. Jesus says in verse 4 of John 4 4, he's going into Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Samaria. If you're a Jew, you don't walk through Samaria. You hate those people. They hate you. They're half-breeds. They're not really Jews. So therefore, I'm going to walk out of my way. I'll go way over here to the east and then come back around if I'm going to Galilee. But he had to pass through Samaria because he's going to a Samaritan. 
So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus being weird from his journey was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Do you remember this story? The woman he meets at the well that was a designed plan by God. Jesus must go to Samaria. He had really no choice. This is part of it. He had to pass through Samaria. He had to go to Samaria. He had to go to this woman. And of course, He confronts her, shows her that He's more than who she thinks He is, just a Jew. She argues about where to, where's the best place to worship, their temple or the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus just confronts right where she's at, confronts her in her sin, and her having other husbands and now living with a man. There's no way that he should have even known that. He wasn't even from these parts. She had never seen him. And he comes there and converts a Samaritan woman. You know that story. We could go through that, but in, in itself, that's a, a, a little bit of length. And then she goes back to her house and tells people in her little town about this man, this man Jesus, who told her about her past. Only God could do that. She was converted and the fields were white for harvest because they had to come and see that too. Isn't that beautiful? That is exactly what Jesus did. Does He have the power to do His purpose? That's what He does. When He came to you and converted you, did you know that was His perfect timing? So it goes. The divine timetable. Look at Luke chapter 9, verse 51. When the days were approaching for His ascension, He's been telling them now that He's going to have to die, be crucified, and then to ascend up. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. If you hear about people that are getting ready to kill you, and they're from that area, you stay away from there, right? Well, he did until the time. When the time came, he was determined to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. It has to be that way. Otherwise, if it doesn't happen, we are all sitting here meaninglessly. There's no purpose here. We're not saved. Our sins have not been forgiven. This was part of the plan. Jesus demonstrates the very nature of God. You want to see the Father? All you have to do is look at Jesus. Look at the Son. And you'll see who the Father is. No one can see God. But you see Him through the person of Christ. As we look through it through the Word of God this morning, are you seeing Him clearly? What a great God He is. You know what? There's going to be something happen there in that little town. Nobody's expecting. Nobody but one. The people don't know it. They don't even know they're going to meet Him. So, I think it's amazing here in Luke 7. Disciples were going along with Him. Okay, um, we don't probably have to spend spend very much time on this one at all. Disciples means matetas, means learners. And it's more than just the twelve disciples or the twelve apostles. We've seen earlier in in other passages, if if we want to look just quickly, Luke 6.13, And when day came, He calls His his disciples to Him and chose twelve of them. So that means there were uh, quite a few disciples coming, the ones who had been following Him, learning from Him, and then He chose 12 out of those people. And then we go on to chapter uh, chapter 6, verse 20. And turning His gaze toward His disciples, He began to say, Blessed are you who are poor. Now this is just more than the apostles. It's the disciples, the learners, the followers. He starts preaching the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes right there. And then in chapter 7, verse 9. 
Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him, this is the centurion servant, and, or a centurion, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, following Christ, there was a crowd, okay? So there's a crowd, you have crowds, you have disciples, true learners, then you have the twelve apostles that are really close in, in him. Chapter 7, verse 14. And he came and touched the coffin, and the bearers came to a halt. And he said, "Young, uh, um, let me let me skip over that. Um, what I think I need there is chapter um, fourteen, verse twenty-five, or or Luke Luke nine fourteen. That's what I really meant. For there were about five thousand men, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down to eat in groups of about fifty each.'" I tend to think there the disciples probably would have been like the twelve, the twelve apostles. But maybe there's more that's going to help. But you think about that. So sometimes the disciples can be, you know, those twelve, or it can mean even more. It can be the, the people in the crowd there, the ones that are following him. In, in fourteen twenty-five, now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, "Okay, here you have crowds. Some of them wouldn't necessarily be." Um, disciples. They might just be people that have heard about him and they, hey look, there's an entourage of people, you know, there's literally thousands of people. So they just join the crowd. You know, hey, I've heard something about him, you know, so they start, you know. And some of them turn into disciples, truly following him. So, But there's large crowds, right? And so we emphasize that. Now, we, we turn back to our, our passage there. Now we just talked about Divine purpose, didn't we? God's sovereign in His purpose, in His plans, right? Now we move on into point on point one to B, which is divine providence. This is amazing, and I mean truly amazing. Miracles are amazing because they're supernatural. But you know what? I can understand miracles a lot better than providence of God. You say, how's that? Well, see, miracles are just something whenever the supernatural, which is Jesus, comes and into a natural realm and He does something that is not natural. It's not in nature for that to happen. Uh, it, it's, it's an amazing thing that happens, but it, it comes from a, already a supernatural God. And so He steps in. That's an uh, amazing characteristic that God has to do that, right? He's, but that's who He is. He's a supernatural God. But providence actually uses natural things for God, and they can be thousands of things, millions of things, come together for His perfect plan. The providence of God, you know, He takes care of us, right? I mean, and... It's, it's amazing because you can take all the different contingencies, all the different things that don't even seem to relate. He brings myriads, thousands and millions of events even, circumstances, brings them together to make His plan work. Sometimes we see some of these things and we go, wow, God was working in that all that time. You know what I'm talking about? Everyone here, if you're a Christian, you've seen the providence of God. You've seen where He's taking care of you and the things that He did. You know, His plan is working. How was Jesus going to control this? Where this, you have the death of this man, you have the timing of this funeral. He's like 20 miles away. The whole service of this thing, the whole thing is, you know, that you encounter here is incredible. It's the right place at the at the right moment. That's called divine providence. So we see divine purpose, we see divine providence, and it refers to God's superintending control over all human actions and events to affect His predetermined purpose. So we talked about purpose, and then He works miracles, or He works providence. So here we're having both happen. A supernatural event, but with this divine providence happening. And it, that happens quite frequently, doesn't it? It's one of the most amazing characteristics of God. The providence of God. A miracle is amazing, but it's not as complex as providence. 
working in a natural realm. Miracles when God steps in, interrupts the natural, and injects a supernatural explosion of power. That's what we're about to see too. So, we move on in our Luke passage. His disciples were going with Him. We talk about disciples. Accompanied by a large crowd. Now think of it. He's, there's a whole group of probably thousands with Him. How long was this line? Some of those paths that they walked had to be pretty narrow. I mean, this had to extend for a, quite a, a length. They're all following wherever it goes. And it says, Now as He approached the gate of the city, now He's gone like 20 miles with all the crowd. That's amazing right there. I mean, to have that many people follow you for 20 miles to walk, that's not miraculous because people do that today. I've heard of people walking from St. Louis to Jeff City and coming to the Capitol for a demonstration, so I guess they do that. Sometimes it makes you wonder what in the world are they doing. (laughs) And this we know, right? This is the timing. It just couldn't even be better. Sometimes there are times in your life when timing happens, you go, there's no way that could happen unless God intervened. You know what? This wasn't by accident. The disciples, Jesus, the apostles, the crowd, are going to meet, coming from the other side, a funeral possession. Now, this is a small sound, town here. Okay, there, There's no wall, so we're going to concentrate just for a moment the gate of the city. That's where Jesus is going to meet it. Now, the funeral is going to take you outside of the gate of the city. That's where you bury the dead. Outside the gates. They don't have a wall there, but they do have a gate. It's important to have a gate. Every town wants a gate. Uh, That's the significance of the city, to have a gate. That's where you would have uh, the elders of the city make judicial decisions and people would socialize. It was at least as a place that was the identification of the town. You know, there's something there, even as small as it is. And so there would be meetings that would uh, take place there. Well, there's a meeting now that's getting ready to happen that had never happened in Nain and I guess probably never ever has since, like this meeting. You have two groups meeting. One group is on the way to the cemetery. The other group is actually a joyous type of group because they've seen some of the things that Jesus has done. It's just like in life. When you think of cemetery, you think of death. Take it even further. There are people on their way marching to hell. And then on the other hand, you have people of God who are marching into the heavenly city. And that is representing life. So two groups meet. Two sons are going to meet. One is the Son of Man, and this Son of Man here in this sense is one who's dead. And then you have the Son of God, and He's the Prince of Life. He is the resurrection and life. You have two sufferers who are going to meet. One is the widow. She's a sufferer because she is a widow and now she's lost her only son. You also have a sufferer who is the Lamb of God who came into this world to suffer rejection from His own people, to be crucified and to be left for dead. Two enemies met. The first enemy was death. He had invaded this town, devastated this family. The other enemy, the enemy of death, is life. Life and death are meeting. When Jesus came, He defeated death and Hades and hell. Same for us. He did that. He did that at the cross, showed it by His resurrection. So you have two different crowds. Think about it. Think on this scene. Imagine this. Put yourself there. 
two crowds approaching the gate of the city, one from one end, one the other, they're coming from opposite directions. Two entirely different moods are going on here. The one following Jesus is joyful. It's jubilant. They've seen the power of God at work. They're right in the presence of Christ. They've heard Him teach, saw Him do things in mighty ways. He's being glorified among the Jewish people there. But even Gentile people like the centurion also gave glory to God. Gentile who was converted, had faith. He recognized the authority. The other crowd, it's made up of the people of Nain. They came for a different purpose. They did what was the thing to do. You have ahead of that crowd, the first, very first one walking is the one who is in grief, the mourner. It's, it's this widow. And behind her are other women. They're all leading the procession here. And the men and the children. Now tradition had it this way, and I didn't make this up, but tradition says that the women would lead because Eve had led the human race into sin. So it goes, that's what they did. They would hire professional mourners if they could. People would be crying and wailing in there to make it really be present that somebody had died. People would know. They would wail loudly. You have this bereaved mother. She would be tearing her clothes, torn clothes. She would have been walking. Comforters are around there. That's what's at the head. And then behind at the very end, near that end there would become the other mourners and finally the funeral stretcher which lay the deceased person. So that's, that's the setting there. That's what's going on. And there's been death. Death has been part of the human experience going back to Adam and Eve. And that was a warning that God had to Adam. He says, you obey me and if you don't, you will surely die. Well, that day that he sinned, he did not, did not die physically, but he died spiritually. He was separated from the very presence of God. And that continues to be the experience of every human being since Adam and Eve. And we know that they all die. Elijah and Elisha, okay, different thing. They just got caught up to him. thing is, death, it's pain, it's part and parcel of the human experience. And so, you know, in Genesis 2.17, what I just talked about that, or Hebrews 9.27, we live once. It has been appointed for man to die once, to live, then die, and then comes the judgment. That has been the way that has gone. Ephesians 2.1, we see something even worse, though, than physical. We all are dead spiritually. That's even worse than the physical body dying. It's There has to be something done with this life, spiritual life. So it's a time of death. This death is representing... It's a shame that it has to happen. Jesus has to experience it and see it. The only thing is, whenever He went to funerals... <laughs> when Jesus came to us in our death, our spiritual death, He came to us. There's desperation here. Not only is there death, but there's desperation. It's the part of the widow because her only son dies. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? Her only son. Her only begotten son. Here is a woman who has felt the icy pain of one who died even before her because death took her husband. And it was like it was only now her and her son. I want you to feel this. It's terrible when you lose a spouse that you've lived with most of your life. And then they're gone. And now... She's going to lose. She loses her son. What kind of memories was going through her head at this time? Also, her precious son had been taken away by death. 
But there's more here than the death of this beloved son. She has no one left to care for her. For one thing, she is a woman. It's hard to make a life by yourself and to be able to live, although some did. She was probably a little bit older in in her older age, especially for that time. There was no welfare plans at that time, no assistance available. It was up to the woman's family, it was up to the woman's children. She has no children now. She has no one left. Do you feel it? There's nobody left. She's in despair. She's in a desperate condition. She lives in a poor town. She's probably a poor widow. Poverty that she's in. And she's counting on the mercy of people and their kindness. She has nowhere to go, nowhere to turn. She has no son to go to now. She's trapped in a helpless condition. By the way, a lot of these things are going through her mind right now. And the thing is, the son probably, and I'll probably even say it more than probably, died that day. Because they didn't wait two, three days later, and of course now it goes to maybe five or a week later, or maybe even weeks or months. You know, we have memorials, that kind of things have changed. But at that time, they would preserve that body immediately. As soon as they knew they were dead, they would take care of that and then go and get it buried. News would get around quickly that he died. This is all the things that has to be going through her mind at this time. Would you be devastated? It's a terrible thing. She has a great need. She lost her son. woman lost everything. We don't read anything about the woman's faith. We have no idea. We have no clue. Where is she at in her walk with the Lord? We don't know. It doesn't say. There's no mention of any kind of entreaty that she called Jesus 20 miles away to get there in a hurry. As we know that Lazarus had that happen and Jesus said, oh, it'll wait. It's okay. It waited until after there was three days that everybody would know, you know, that nobody would say, well, he really wasn't dead. You know. But And by the way, Jairus' daughter, you know, he raised also. There might have been many others that he raised, but we get those three occasions in there. She had done nothing to merit a miracle. Jesus took the complete initiative in what He did. She didn't expect Him coming, did she? She didn't know it. Maybe she doesn't even know anything about Him. Although I got a feeling she probably does. Nain is just a few miles from Nazareth. Of course, we know He got booted out of Nazareth, right? Out of His hometown. So we've just now done point number one. I promise it'll go quicker. Does that help? Do you get the feel? Do you get the feel? This is what Jesus and the crowd now are entering into. Now we get compassion. The compassionate Savior. This is Jesus. What motivated Him to act that day? It's part of the plan but he felt compassion. Dead man has been carried out. The only son of his mother. She was a widow. We just described that, right? A sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, He felt compassion for her. He said to her, do not weep. Compassion. What is it? Splanknizomai. Can you say that? Splanknizomai. You ever had a real gut feeling? I mean, to really feel it deep down. To really feel it. It wasn't that he kind of went through the motions. No, he felt this for that lady. That's why he's there. It's there for that lady. She had a deep need. He feels it. He connected. 
a deep inner affection. By the way, the word in the Greek there is dealing with bowels. Deep down into the bowels. Deep down. That's what he felt. Feelings that come from deep inside. So it's not just an intellectual kind of sympathy that he has, but he felt deeply for this woman. That's what he felt for you when he came to you. Because you were deep in your sins and you didn't even know it. He didn't know you were lost. You didn't care. He confronts human sorrow. He feels compassion. By the way, he's still doing it because he is the sympathetic high priest. He is our high priest. He continues to intercede for us. And he feels compassion for us. You guys ever felt his compassion? Oh, yeah. There are times when you need it badly. Guess what? There's Jesus and His compassion. Nobody else can meet that. Doesn't matter how you say, man, I need to be around people. That's good. But they can't meet the need no matter what. It's only Christ that can meet the ultimate need. People can serve Him and bring that on, but it's His power that can do that. Look in Lamentations 3.22. Jeremiah, Lamentations, Jeremiah lamenting. Chapter 3, verse 22. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease. Never. For His compassions never fail. Great is Thy faithfulness. His compassions never fail. His mercy never fails. He has... Oh, they are new every morning. Right out of that song that we just... Great is your faithfulness. What a God. Do we really believe Him? Boy, He comes at a time when we really need Him the most. By the way, He's always there. Matthew 9.36 Passions, they fail not. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Why? Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. That's pretty graphic, isn't it? Sheep without a shepherd. They were desperate. They were distressed. And he splanked Nidzomine. He felt the deep need at this time. In our despair, we're prone to feel like nobody understands. Nobody gets it. And that can very well be. We can have a loneliness that just intensifies gets us to despair you ever been there people get there but when we sense these scriptures these promises about his compassion never fails he understands thoroughly more than we'll ever you know what it does it gives us a ray of hope all of a sudden the darkness all of a sudden starts to subside and we see the light. We start counting upon the Scriptures that we've read and go, oh, why wasn't I thinking of that? Why are we staying in despair? You know what? We're not alone. We're all there sometimes. Jesus understands. He cares. It's interesting. Go back to Luke. Jesus does something here. If somebody else would do this, you'd like to just deck them. Oh, don't weep. Do not weep. Don't cry. She's at a funeral. Her her only son's funeral. She should be grieving and crying and mourning. That's part of the process that God has given. That's That's a gift. But only Jesus can do this and get away with this. Because He already has a plan. This is a joyous time. And so He's getting her ready as He says this. She doesn't understand. Nobody else does. Everybody hears it. He's not insensitive, is He? 
she he wants her to start seeing something special about him. He's tenderly saying, Hey, look to me. I can do something about this cause of your grief. Go to number three. Verse 14 and 15. It's about the purity of Christ. And it came up, touched the coffin. The bearers came to a halt. He said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up, began to speak. Jesus came back to his mother. <laughs> Just like that. Well, there's no greater ritual impurity in Israel than to touch a corpse or to touch a thing that has a corpse where the corpse is touched. You just don't go near it. You don't touch it. It doesn't mean just one day of ritual purification. It means a whole seven day week period there. And it also involves an elaborate ceremonial purification. Jesus is not going to need that. But everybody else, because of the law, and really what's that saying spiritually? What's the deal about that? It's showing death is a picture of spiritual death. Shows you how drastically in a terrible situation that is. It's a defilement. It's, a, it's more dramatic than uh, contact with the dead in the ceremonial law of Israel whenever somebody is spiritually dead. Um, to actually go up to a funeral uh, coffin, walk up there, and to touch it. It'd certainly be unclean. Now, there's Numbers 19, 11 through 22, which gives that picture of the law there. <laughs> and at Hebrews 7, 26, it uh, mentions something like that, but it shows you that Christ is one who doesn't need to be ceremonially cleansed because He defeats death. He is the pure one. Uh, <coughs> Hebrews 7.26 For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He is undefiled, unpolluted, no matter even if He touches this coffin. Now, the idea for the words coffin there, um, be unusual for Jews to put a body in a coffin that we think of today. It's using that word, but it would probably be better to say stretcher. His body is put on a stretcher. Later on, when the young man sits up, uh, it's pretty evident that he wasn't in a coffin that was closed. He just sits up, starts speaking. Now, the bearers come to a halt. Well, Jesus has just told this woman to stop crying, walks right up there and touches this stretcher with the dead body on it. Uh-uh. Don't do that. This man is nuts. Nobody does this. What was it about his personal that they they stopped? You know, this is kind of an outrageous behavior. This is unacceptable behavior. Tell a woman not to cry, and then touch a tasket, uh, a tasket there. There, you just you just don't do that. But this is the holy God. They're going to meet somebody here they had no clue of who he was. And they immediately figured out. Um, is this some kind of a sick joke? He said he didn't really actually didn't have to do anything here, did he? He just spoke. He just spoke. He said, Arise. Wow. Young man, I say to you, arise. He doesn't say anything to the woman or the ones holding the the stretcher there. He speaks to the dead man. Arise. Go to Psalm 33, verse 6. 
By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their host. He created the world. Christ is a creator. He just spoke it. God speaks, it happens. He doesn't have to do anything. He just speaks. Look in John 5, 25-29. This brings the spiritual aspect out on this. 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Amen? Here we go. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave to the Son also to have life in Himself. And He gave Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice. And will come forth those who did the good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. There is the one who has the power of life. To do it physically here in this sense, it's a spiritual resuscitation, by the way, really is what's happening. But there is a spiritual resurrection. One day there will be a time when our bodies, then put into the ground, will meet our spiritual body, our, 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 our spirit person. And we'll have a new body. So it goes all to the, you know to that point, but uh, what you're having here is authority of Jesus Christ. So Jesus addresses this man and tells him to arise. The healing here, I guess, say this resuscitation, this resurrection, in that sense, seems to be immediate. I mean, instantly. A split second. Life surged into a dead corpse. Just like that. From death to life. Only God can do that. What other religion offers this? Just like the daughter of Jairus, just like Lazarus came right out of the grave, this is created power. What kind of power? Dead man sat up. I want to tell you something. That'll break up a funeral. Wow! Don't do it right there. Just like that. Arise and the man just immediately sets up. And just to show that he's alive, he starts speaking. Now what I would like to know is, what did he say? There's nothing here. We don't know. Whoa, that was a pretty good sleep. Hi, Mom. I mean, you could go on and on. You know, I mean... There's several funerals in the New Testament that you could see here, and every one he went to, Jesus did, he seemed to break them up by raising the dead. His miracles are instantaneous, they are complete, no rehabilitation process is instantly. He came to life, began to speak, there we are. Nobody asked Jesus to do this, nobody had even said a thing, his crowd doesn't know what's happening. The other crowd has no idea, and just like the centurion here who sent somebody to ask him to heal his slave, there wasn't any request like that, was there? Nobody really even seems to have faith here. The dead man can't have faith. Did you see that? That's why in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 is so remarkable. It's all be- and verse 4 says, But God, being rich in his mercy and grace, brings us alive. He quickens us, it says in verse 4. When we were dead, we could not just start believing things as being dead. It took a spiritual awakening before we could even believe. Isn't that amazing? I would read Ephesians 2, but for lack of time, we've been there many times. Centurion had faith. But see, God is not impotent. And our faith is not omnipotent over His. Jesus does a heal here. There's no quest. 
No, faith is even noted. Sometimes we do see that. And it does take faith, but the fact of the matter is, there is that spiritual awakening before that can even happen because our faith is no good. It takes His faith. He grants to us. It's a gift. He doesn't need that, although he, there is a requirement for it. It is a part of it. But what we're saying here, sometimes Jesus used faith, but it wasn't always necessary. By the way, most of the healings, as you'll look through there, faith isn't, even isn't indicated because Jesus just did it. Jesus gave Him back to His mother. What's the point with that? He could have said, okay, now I want you and your son to travel with me. And everywhere we go, they will know that He came back from the dead. And we'll go on an evangelistic tour and we'll bring all the TV cameras and we'll broadcast this all over the countryside. He doesn't say that. He gives the son back. He says, look, son, your mother needs you. Remember? You mothers understand this, don't you? Man, what a show of compassion that Jesus just has done. That's why He did it. I think you have salvation here too, don't you? A picture of salvation from death to life. Well, there is the fearful response and we're closing here. I'm sorry, I've taken it up to... It's not noon yet, but... We're closing 16 and 17 and this is quite what you'd expect to happen. It should. Fear gripped them all. And they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people. This report concerning Him went out all over Judea and in all the surrounding district. We could spend a whole week on this passage right here. And... We're not. But you get the idea, right? We've said this many times. Fear here is phobos. Phobia in our English. It means holy terror. If you saw a dead man sit up and start speaking, and you know he was dead, would you be in the fear of God? And we're talking a real fear here. We're talking... They're scared to death that they might have to be raised back up. (laughs) Why do they have this holy terror? When you're in the presence of God and you know it, you are very aware of the power of God. We should all be in fear of God. Do you fear God? Do you fear what God can do? Do you fear God that what He can do to you? Whenever God makes appearances in Scripture, that's what kind of holy fear that you see. Adam and Eve hiding after they were they sinned. Why are they hiding? They know about a holy God. It's about Moses fearing on the mount as he got the law. How about Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6 fearing that he's going to be destroyed because he's seen God. Or Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, or in Luke 5, where Peter cast or actually puts the nets out where Jesus told him to fish. And remember, that was a crazy thing. And Jesus realized this was the power of God for this to happen. This is God. I am a sinful man. Get away from me. You're holy. God doesn't leave us there, He is transcendent, but He's a holy God who has shown Himself to us too. If He just left it out of being a terror and a fear, and all we thought about God is that we always were scared of Him, what kind of relationship would that be? They gave glory to God, I guess. A great prophet, I would turn to 1 Kings, 2 Kings. You can read about that later. you got Elijah and Elisha. They both were part of God raising people to life. Sons of parents back to life again. Elijah and Elisha. 
great prophet has visited us. They had to be thinking about Elijah and Elisha. Probably. It's an old familiar Old Testament expression. God has tented. He's tabernacled with His people. God has visited His people. It literally means God has arrived here. God has come here. That's what they're saying. They just saw something that they could not believe. But they're believing it. Fear. And then what comes out of fear? Glory to God. God has come here to help us. He's come here to show His care for us. Luke one seventy eight. He's come to visit His people. Well, the news spread, and we see that in the last verse. It report went all over Judea. I mean, where it went, they were so terrified of His presence, it catapulted them into glorifying God. As they glorify God, what do you do? You get the news of what just happened. This is real. What happened here in Nain? They praised and worshipped God. God had visited them, and then a report went out. A man had been raised from the dead through the power of Jesus. We're not talking one or two witnesses here. We're talking about multiple witnesses. Folks, we're talking thousands of witnesses here that this really happened. They saw it. They were there. Jesus is walking around. It went to the ends of the land of Israel, all Judea and Galilee, Jerusalem. The message went everywhere. Because, because of God, the dead live. You can add to that, and this is where this will go to next week. The blind see. The lame walk. The deaf hear. The demons are cast out. God is visiting His people. We close with Jesus moved in grace. He moved in power. He broke up a funeral possession that day. What kind of power does it take to do that? He gave them hope in a place of despair and fear. He gave them a life of of absolute hope as He showed who He was. You know what? Those people turned around and went with joy back to their homes. A lot of them probably followed Christ after that. What Jesus did that day in name is what He does to His people. He did in my life one day as well. I was dead in my sins. I was in desperate conditions. But He came in grace. He came in power. He turned my death into desperation for Him. I was desperate and He turned it into a deliverance and delivered me from my chains. And they broke. What a Savior. What a love. What grace. I'm in awe. Let's close with prayer. Father, thank You for Your grace, Your love, Your mercy, Your compassion. We see so much of Your attributes in this passage today. Lord, I am overwhelmed. It's not just a Bible story. This is life. This is our Savior. Help us to seek You further. Help us to seek Your Word. And may it stick in our minds daily as we go about our daily life and apply this message today to our lives that we have. In Jesus' name, Amen.